to the Hoops Temple Podcast. Y'all know me, Nathan Schwartz. Joining me as always, Aaron Schroeder and Dylan Williamson. But today we have a special guest, Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. Ben, how are you doing today? Doing great, guys. Great to be here. I'm sure we're going to have a lively discussion, debate, whatever you guys want to call it. Let's let's hop in. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, Ben, I think one of the first things I really fell in love with of your work is your annual top 100, first for Sports Illustrated, now for the Washington Post. I know you uh, haven't released yours yet, but we were able to send you over ours. Uh, and you said you had some nits to pick. You want to just start off with letting us have it. Well, I mean, first of all, it's a great exercise. I imagine you guys are having as much fun as I typically have. I remember the golden era of the top 100s when Twitter was still functional and not called X. And some of the players would like argue about the lists. And I think at one point we actually prompted Dwayne Wade to make motivational wristbands because of how low we ranked him on uh, the Sports Illustrated top 100. So that's one of my all-time claims to fame, and, and that's how deep I get into this. So I think it's been like 10 or 12 years of doing this. I'm not sure if it gets easier or harder. I think it's, you know, as someone who's making the list, you guys probably find that you fall in love with players and kind of carry that over from year to year. Uh, but I think this is a really fun uh, year this year because I, most everyone would agree Jokic has got to be one. He's the top dog coming in after his first title, championship validation, finals MVP a third straight MVP caliber season, even though he didn't win it. He's smack in the middle of his prime. We expect Denver to be a, a leading contender again. His defensive issues that people had in the past, uh, you know, really didn't flare up in the playoffs very often at all. I mean, Denver got by pretty much okay on that side, and their offense was just unbelievable. But after number one, I think you've got debates almost at every single spot. I, I'm curious, how many people did you guys consider at number two? I believe you have Giannis, right, which I think is probably conventional wisdom there, but I think you've got to look at Curry. I think you've got to consider Tatum. I think you've got to uh, consider Luka. And any year where like the conversation is starting as high as two is a pretty good year for the top 100. The Tatum piece is really interesting. We had him just a little bit lower. I felt like we were we were high at high on him at six. That the two conversation would be would be quite a leap. Um, I, I it's interesting. I find that Giannis could be in that conversation for the best player again heading into next season. Like just with the the way he lost in the playoffs, like that changes people. And and if, if someone's going to take that to heart like crazy and just come out and rip people's heads off, I feel like it could be him. Well, look, when I'm looking at Tatum for a candidate in this spot, you know, typically I put Giannis here at two. I'll probably end up with Giannis at two. I think the case for Tatum, though, would be um, he's a more modern player than Giannis in terms of his ability to shoot the three-pointer. He made a lot of progress in terms of his efficiency getting himself to the free-throw line expanding his uh, offensive game a little bit last season, obviously bumped up his scoring number to a new high. You know, if I'm comparing him to a player like Kevin Durant, every single year I've done the list, I've always had KD higher than Tatum. I think that has to swap this year because Tatum's going to be smack in the middle of his prime. You can bank on him for 70 plus games. You can count on his team probably to win 48 plus games. And with KD, it's been two or three years now of straight uh, injuries, just on again, off again. And it's been two straight, uh, pretty underwhelming postseason performances from Kevin Durant as well. So even though Tatum doesn't have the championship validation, even though he went out really sad in that game seven against Miami and just in general, Boston's playoffs, you know, was not the best run that we, we've seen with Tatum. I think he's one of the most bankable guys in the league in terms of what you're going to get from him night in and night out. I expect him to be at or near the top of the MVP conversation this year. He does it on both sides of the court. He's a really easy player to fit with other players around him. Um, I think if you're Boston and you're actually talking yourself into that Chris Depps-Porzingis trade, 
you're just saying, look, everybody fits with Tatum, so it's going to work out okay. And to me, when I'm doing top 100 exercises, players who uh, fit with a wide variety of players typically do very well for me just because you can imagine them, you know, having success with, uh, you know, a clear cut number two guy or maybe a a more well-rounded rotation that doesn't necessarily have a co-star. I think Tatum passes that test as well. So, um, you know, to me, one of the biggest questions from this year's list is how you handle the aging super duper stars, whether that's Curry, LeBron, Kevin Durant, Kawhi Leonard, uh, you, you could throw with James Harden if you want. I don't think he's really, you know, factoring into the top of this list. But all of those guys, to me, are at a point where when they're turning 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, or if they're like Kawhi and they're basically, a, you know, in a 35-year-old's body, even though they're not 35, um, those guys are probably going to have to come down this year. Uh, and none of them had, you know, spectacular postseason performances to kind of, you know, continue the reputations that we've had from previous years. So, that's why I'm wondering, like, should Steph be in the mix for number two? Is he for sure over players like Luka and Tatum if you're trying to look ahead to next year? Um, and the same thing goes for KD. I think he's got to slip out of the top five for me personally. And then LeBron, um, you know, I had him at seven last year. He'll probably be in a similar range this year, but I wouldn't be surprised if he, he dropped a spot or two uh, just because, you know, from a stamina standpoint, uh, you know, from, you know, being able to care like his his peak was 40 points in a loss against Denver. And two years ago, his peak would have certainly been higher than that. Uh, once he like really cranks it up for the playoffs, he misses 25 to 30 games every single season. Now, these are the kinds of things that I have to factor in when I'm doing these top 100 rankings. Yeah, I think even beyond just the trying to predict age related regression, those older guys we're really seeing are now like, you know, the LeBron, Kawhi, et cetera, even Anthony Davis, where you've got these like, not even 60 game players anymore, but like, can we even rely on these guys for more than 50 games? Um, and so you get this interesting dilemma where you've got younger guys who are maybe not going to be at the, at the same sort of peak when they're playing, but are going to be reliable for 70, 70 plus games compared to these older guys that you're getting 50. Um, and trying to weigh that up is something that I think really comes up in this uh, sort of later end of the top 10 where we see you know the likes of and our rankings SGA right in there with Kawhi Leonard. Oh, it's a great point. Let me ask you, though, do some of those old guys, in your opinion, have their <laughs> ceilings collapsed a little bit, right? Because I think in past years, I've always defaulted to the guys who have the championships you know, on their resume, who've done it in the biggest moments. If you're saying KD versus Tatum, that was typically a tiebreaker for me in KD's favor because he'd won the two rigs. He'd been finals MVP. He'd won an MVP. He just had a lot of achievements that Tatum didn't have. But I'm not so certain that KD in Game 7 of the hypothetical finals is going to play better than Game 7 Tatum in the same situation anymore because you know he couldn't really push Denver in the second round. He couldn't even get out of the first round um, last year. And then a similar thing with LeBron. I mean, I think he had a better overall playoffs than KD did this year. Uh, but his peak is not where it was during that 2020 bubble run. So I'm curious, did you guys factor that in at all when you're when you're describing these things? Because if you have players who have aged so far on the regression standpoint that they can't reach their peak levels, we can't give them the bonus points anymore, yeah. can we? we? We ended up actually dropping LeBron out of the top 10. And I, I wanted wow. to get your take on that because I remember you saying uh, that you, you held Kobe up for too long. I think there was one year that you mentioned Oh, gosh, this is digging back in the podcast memories, but you mentioned something about having about like 17 when it probably should have been like 45 or something. And just, right. you know, you, you held on to that respect. Uh, and maybe we did that with uh, keeping Curry at three and Durant at four. 
um, as a Lakers fan that had watched LeBron night in, night out. You know what? He set the record against OKC. And that game, he, he didn't have it. He didn't have the fire. I really, I wanted to see, hey, not just set the record, but like, let's get the win because we really need it. We're fighting them for play-in seeding. And he just, he wasn't able to take it up that level to get the win on on that auspicious night. And so I, I do worry a lot about what he's got left on that peak. The floor can drop out pretty quickly with the foot injury at 39. Right. And you can, you can never predict when the floor is going to hit. I mean, you can kind of guess and get close, but you know, there's a chance if he were to get injured this year that, you know, he's not even a top 100 player that happened to Kobe his last couple of years where he just was not even close from an efficiency standpoint, from a consistency standpoint, availability standpoint, but because he's the most famous player in the league, he's obviously going to be getting ranked on all these lists and they're just going to look wildly off. Another player who, who's a good example of that would be Russell Westbrook, right? Like I even showed him deference last year and include him in the top 100. Um, you know, he's probably not in my top 400 players to watch, right? But it's still like you're giving him the the credit. But now that he goes to a different situation, kind of washes out, it's easier for me to defend not including Russell Westbrook this year, even than it was last year. And there's a strong case he shouldn't have been a top 100 player for the last two or three seasons, even though he puts up huge numbers just based on his impact, how well he contributes to winning and those kinds of questions. LeBron not being in the top 10 is gutsy. I give you guys a lot of credit. It really comes down to what your defining qualities are. If you're picking a player to start a team and carry you through an 82-game season, you have to have a guy like Shea Gilgis alexander or maybe even a Donovan Mitchell Mm-hmm. over LeBron James at this point because you're just factoring in that LeBron's going to miss so much more time than those other guys, right? But if you're factoring in what can he do in the playoffs, he's a top probably two or three most intelligent player in the NBA right now in terms of being able to manipulate games, you know, uh, force favorable matchups, get the most out of his team in the postseason, uh, you know, do those things give him some bonus points over some other guys? Uh, you know, it's a really tricky equation. I mean, you're, you're making a strong case for why he shouldn't be top 10, But one thing that I noticed from this year, and I don't know if you guys had the same experience, I thought that a lot of the guys in the 10 to 20 range last year were like really disappointing for a variety of reasons, right? Whether it's Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, John Morant, I mean, he's got more gun suspensions than playoff victories, right? Um, You just go right down the list of Trey Young, you know, completely irrelevant last year, got a massive amount of stats, but just did not factor in at all to the national conversation about the NBA Carl Anthony Towns from Minnesota. Need I go on, right? I mean, you got a lot of people in this group who, if you just say, should they be rising or falling? There's a lot of young players in that group that I mentioned. It's not just the Paul George and Kawhi Leonard's who are, you know, kind of fading towards the end of their careers, who you're saying, wait a minute, why didn't they make the leap? What happened to them? And you do have a Shea here, a Donovan Mitchell there, guys who did make a, a case to push up, but I actually think this year it's going to be really hard to get the order from 10 to 20 correct. Because there's just so many guys who were disappointing across the board last year. And everybody's getting numbers, right? Like, everybody's getting stacked mm-hmm. in the NBA right now because of pace, because no one's playing defense during the regular season. So it's easy to, like, kind of convince yourself that they're having amazing years. But if you look at impact on winning plus minus some of the other advanced stats and you just look, you know, where those guys – teams actually landed there's a lot of guys who I frankly I was disappointed in especially guys kind of in that like 23 to 27 age range you know somewhere in there and that's to say nothing of Ben Simmons or Zion or some of these other guys who you know we would have thought three or four years ago would have been like top 20 mainstays right 
For sure. I think to a few notes. One, we didn't have Westbrook in our top 100. We didn't have last year either. That was something we defended passionately. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> um, the other thing, we did have SGA above above LeBron at, at number 10. And I feel like it's SGA and it's Anthony Edwards in terms of like the really young guys. It's like, all right, this is the crop of superstars. Like, can we see it from these two? Especially for the Thunder. Because I mean, we say like they tanked and whatnot, but it, was, it wasn't that long. It was like two seasons. And they're kind of now they're back to... I anticipate a playoff push this year. Like SG was first team all NBA. Is there an MVP leap? Because if they win 50 games, like there's no reason why that couldn't be in the conversation. I'm with you. I would just, you know, caution pump the brakes a little bit on Anthony Edwards. I think he's one of the hottest names in the NBA right now, especially among younger players. Uh, you look at the Olympic or sorry, I should say the FIBA World Cup experience. I think it's really telling. He's a headliner of the team because he has the most confidence, the most swagger, the most offensive ability. And he went into those practices in Las Vegas at their training camp and just took over and dominated the gym immediately. Gets everybody really excited. But when you really drill down, does he make his teammates better? How good is he really at passing the basketball? From a defense standpoint, he gets a lot of credit for his intensity on the ball. But is he actually a good defensive player? How many positions can he guard? How good is he off the ball? How good is he as a rebounder for his position? And then offensively, I give him a lot of credit because he's an honest basketball player. He's not out there foul hunting and foul chasing, but that works to his detriment because given his athletic skills, he should be finishing above the rim more often. He should be at the uh, free throw line more often. He should just be punishing opposing defenses more consistently than he does. And so I think, you know, of all the young players who I get excited about, I mean, he's on that list, but I also feel like he almost leaves the most on the table uh, uh, to me. And so I'm sure I will have him lower on my list than most people will have uh, him on their lists. And, you know, so far it's been a pretty short postseason resume for him. He came on strong late in that series against Denver, but he started so slowly it almost didn't matter. And then against, uh, you know, Memphis, he had some real highs and some real lows there too. And I think, you know, ultimately that's one of the things I look at with Anthony Edwards is the streakiness factor. Mm -hmm. If you judge him on his best day, he looks like he's a top seven player in the NBA if you judge him on his worst day, he's not even in the top 50. So the truth has to be somewhere in the middle in terms of what he's giving you every single night. And my great hope, actually, is that Minnesota just internally admits they screwed up the Gobert thing and they don't prioritize Gobert whatsoever. And they just prioritize keeping the floor as spread as possible for Anthony Edwards this year. Just get away from doing any of the two big stuff where they're going to kind of crowd the paint so that we can really see does that adjustment help Anthony Edwards improve his consistency? Because there's a world where he comes out of this season being a top 10 player, but if they're going to still try to force feed some of this uh, the, the fit stuff with all their bigs, I could see him being closer to 25 in terms of conventional wisdom, what people think, because uh, you know if Minnesota doesn't win a series, they don't take a step forward. He's not free to, to really explore everything he, he can do as a player in the playoffs. People are going to come away a little bit disappointed based on all the hype he got this summer. We ended up putting him at 18, uh, but you touched on a couple of things in there uh, because like we had him at 21 last year. We moved him up to 18. We're excited to see what that leap looks like, but we're not going to go quite overboard yet. We want to see him prove it first. Uh, but I was really kind of surprised at how much we ended up dropping some of his co-stars, which we had Towns at 20, dropped him down to 36. Uh, going into last season, we had Gobert at 25, which felt reasonable. Um, I see you had him at 16 going into last season. Uh, we dropped him all the way down to 52, which is is one of our larger drops from those like top 20 guys. <laughs> right. And that that still feels like it might be too kind. How are you feeling about the other two, Carl, uh, Anthony Towns, and 
and Rudy Gobert. I know you don't have it fully worked out yet, and like you guys aren't releasing it yet, but like, do you have like a ballpark of where you're thinking those guys are going to land? Well, one thing I would say is this is why you have to go back to the vacuum test for every single player, as opposed to just basing it on what did they do in their role the previous season, because um, all those guys were set up for failure. It was just a Mm -hmm. terrible idea by the front office. I think I'm sure you guys were probably banging on what the heck are they thinking when they traded for Gobert. I mean, it was like everybody's singing the same song, right? And all of the concerns played out um, as expected. The only caveat to that was Towns got injured. So, you know, you got to drop him a little bit just because of the health standpoint. He had been really healthy earlier in his career, but he's now had a couple of these extended injuries, which kind of changes his perception. Um, I don't think I'm going to be as low on either Towns or Gobert as you guys, but Gobert's coming down a lot. You know, when he got to Minnesota, he was coming off of a season where he was consistently uh, leading top five defenses, right? Like you could just put him out there with anybody and they're going to win 50 games and have a top five defense. Uh, Even without Towns, like when he was off the court and Gobert could just play the starting center role and just be the backbone of the defense, they were never in that top five defense conversation. And then his offensive impact, because he didn't have the right kind of pieces to set him up in Minnesota like he had in uh, Utah, because they didn't have the same amount of spacing in Minnesota as they had in Utah, was just such a drag. And it's so painful to watch. It's so ugly. It's like watching a team just run into a brick wall over and over again. And so his offensive flaws actually wound up uh, you know, kind of carrying the day from a narrative standpoint. If you put him in a vacuum on a random team and you didn't have all these different mouths to feed and he was able to sort of just be that linchpin defensive guy. Could he still lead a top 10 defense? I would say yes. Would he be as damaging as he was uh, in Minnesota? I would say probably not, but this is probably a good thing that we should look back and say, Quinn Snyder really knew what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And he's a great coach because he was able to get that, that many wins out of Utah Instead of saying, oh, they could never get over the hump, their failures, they probably shouldn't have even been close to the hump in the first place based on what we saw with Gobert in Minnesota. That's why he's got to come down. Towns is a really tricky player, man. He feels a lot like fool's gold to me because he's not a five, but he's also not a four. Defensively, he's been a disappointment his entire career. He's not really a playmaker for others, although he can pass the basketball He's going to get good numbers there. I actually thought he did a nice job of sacrificing his own offense last season to try to fit in around with the other players. But, um, you know, he's also the type of guy who should be a number one scoring option on his own team. He's not going to be that in Minnesota. And so I do think his environment conspires against him. And that's why I would bump him up a little bit higher than I think you guys have him, because I think in an average environment, he would have a larger role. He'd be able to score more. He'd get more touches. He wouldn't have to defer. He, w- he wouldn't have to try to fit with Rudy Gobert. I just think basically both those guys are like ankle weights on each other. And that's why they're dropping so far on your list because yeah. it was oil and water from the start. They never should have tried it. I will. I, I hate to say it, but I am among the contrarians. I There's a reason why we always try to invite you on the pod. Uh, and I, I love listening to you and Andrew go back and forth. But I've got a little bit of that Andrew Grease pig in me. When everyone goes one way, I want to go the other way. So I, I was with the, oh man, we got... Tyson Chandler, Dirk Nowitzki, 2.0. Obviously not as good, but uh, I, I was in on this working. Uh, Aaron, Dylan, what do you We're what still in. Yeah. Hey, we, don't lie. We oh, okay. still think I they can be good. Guys with me. I, w- I was going to give you the out and just say it was a me thing. <laughs> just remember that the, the NBA has changed so much since Dirk Nowitzki and Tyson Chandler. It's like this story. I don't know if you guys saw today. Netflix is sending out its last DVDs that it's ever sent. And they're letting the customers keep that final DVD. So people who are still using Netflix 
for mail order DVDs are getting be able to keep their very last one as like a token of appreciation. When Dirk Nowitzki and Tyson Chandler were dominating as a two-headed monster, there was no streaming Netflix and everybody was doing the, the, the uh, mail order DVDs, right? So now fast forward 12 years and they finally ended the service. So I, I, you got to keep those kinds of things in mind when you're looking for the... Uh, Historical cops. That cannot be true. Lot, that cannot be true. Netflix did not start. Netflix had to have started streaming before that, right? 20, 2011 seems they're about yeah. right, but someone no, no. should give Tim Connolly that analogy. It would have really helped him out last <laughs> off season. But with Gobert. If you look at like the elite, elite defensive players, a lot of the time, like their defensive peak where it's like, oh my God, like they're a guaranteed top five defense is kind of brief. And when the floor drops out, it just falls. And it's when Gobert loses a step or a step and a half. And he's now, he can't create an offense at all. And he's just a good defender. He's, he's not worth any of the money and any of the picks. 100%. So I never count guys' contracts against them. So let's sure. make that clear. I think it's easy to pile on a guy because he's he's a horrible value. I'm with you, though. Gobert has not been the same. His last year in Utah, he had already started to, and it was noticeable. I think I was typically during Gobert's prime, I was higher on him than most people because I felt like he's as good defensively as some of these superstar level guys are offensively, but he gets no attention. So let's give him credit for it. And he was still a pretty functional offensive piece. But um, I do think the bottom has fallen out to a certain degree. I think it's going to get a lot worse. I mean, let me just say that. Like two years from now, Gobert is going to be in struggle mode. And I also think on your point, if you're a defense first big, typically athleticism is a huge part of what's going to make you an elite defender. That's going to start to erode by about age 27 or 28. So you'll have a lot of these guys who like, you know, Bam Adebayo, you know, these kinds of players who we're just going to be forecasting to have like super duper long primes. And guys who are just going to be like, oh, he's a two-way guy, so he's going to be awesome for like the next five, six, seven years. There's actually a good chance they get to 30. They don't block any shots anymore. And they go, like you're saying, from elite to just good or even very good. And all of a sudden, they've got a tumble on the ratings. Another guy in this category would be Draymond Green. I'm going to have him slip a decent amount this year on my list. I've always been a huge Draymond Green proponent. But you know, some of his advanced numbers last year were really, really ugly. And um, I thought his night to night consistency, mostly because of an age related regression type deal, was coming back to earth. And he still has this reputation in everybody's mind, sort of like Rudy Gobert of, oh, he's a defensive player of the year candidate every single year. And I would say Draymond's still a more impactful defender than Rudy would be. But his offense is pretty messy. His effort level is not there every single night. And his fit with other lineups has become trickier. So he's another guy who I'm going to have to pull back for the same reason you know, he's just, it slipped and the bottom hasn't fallen out yet, but it easily could before his current contract that he just signed ends. And then Golden State's going to be in a tough spot once that happens. We might've been too harsh on him. Uh, last year, we put him down in the forties. So we ended up leaving Draymond pretty, pretty close to the same spot, but there, he's been talking quite a bit about how much David Lee meant to him and how much David Lee set, stepping aside, letting him take over that starter role uh, kind of meant. I know there's been rumors coming out that Chris Paul is going to start, and I think I think we all agree that's a bad idea. But my take on that is maybe Draymond's not starting because uh, I think you got to keep Looney and you got to keep Wiggins in that lineup for front court size. But uh, what do you think about that? Where where are you at with uh, the Chris Paul of it all? I think it's the simplest take anybody could have. It's a terrible idea to start Chris Paul with this group. I don't understand why it's even a conversation. They had a very solid starting lineup. It's well-balanced. Uh, the pieces fit. They've played together for a million minutes, um, at least since Wiggins got there, you know, so he's kind of part of the group. 
And Chris Paul was just not very good last year. You know, he's efficient in a – I mean, he's, he's a perfect sixth man in that he can give you X number of minutes per night, not anything more. He's not going to hold up across an 82-game season, and he's not going to be a playoff player. His, his play is going to diminish as the playoffs uh, unfold. That's a bench player. And the only reason why it's not obvious that he's going to be the sixth man is because people are kind of bending over backwards and doing all these, you know, flips and twists and turns to try to show him deference and respect. Um, I don't get it. Like, I, if I was Steve Kerr, I would have just said, yeah, we traded for him to be the sixth man. We need a guy who can run our second unit and bring some of our young guys up to speed, like the Kamingas of the world. The idea that you're going to push everybody else out of their natural positions to accommodate Chris Paul is just lunacy to me. And it's, there's no way, I promise you, once the games matter, he will not be starting because he will lose the job. And it's not any disrespect to Chris Paul. He's almost 40 years old. He's a tiny point guard. Guy, I mean, outside of Stockton, guys his size never last that long in the NBA. So it's amazing he's pushed it as far as he had. But he wasn't good in the playoffs when he was healthy. He was being completely ignored on the three-point stripe uh, by the Clippers of the first round. They're giving him any shot that he wants, not by accident. They're not blowing coverage. Their entire scheme is just let Chris Paul do whatever he wants to do because he can't beat us. That is not a starting point guard on a championship contender formula. There's no other team in the NBA that would have a point guard where you would just ignore and say, take any shot you want from outside 17 feet. So I, I don't get it. I think it's a classic August, September storyline and the truth will, will rise to the surface, but we'll see. Yeah. I think another thing with Chris Paul that's kind of overlooked is because of his history of elite defense, defensive reputations take a little while to sort of catch up when there's a fall off. And I do think that he's become like, not only not an elite defender, but like a guy that teams actually, you know actively attack i mean there were times in his prime where this guy was you know guarding up a, you know i'm a clippers fan i remember a series where when the, it got down to it you know he was guarding kevin durant because he was you know this intelligent feisty defender who was you know playing way over his head but now he's like slipped athletically struggles to move laterally and to keep up with quicker guys and then being a six foot point guard now he's become a real liability i think as well yeah Especially, especially in the playoffs, I agree with you 100%. I think that's a theme for a lot of these guys that we're talking about. Throw Kevin Durant into that mix too. You know, it's it, in terms of effort level, play-to-play intensity, um, versatility, shot blocking, athleticism. I mean, he's coming off the Achilles. He's deep into his mid-30s. Like there aren't a lot of guys who are at that stage of their career who are his size that are still you know, these amazing all-around defensive pieces. So he's kind of on brand in a certain way of, you know, in terms of like kind of coming back to earth. But I think that's a theme that we're uncovering here is that, you know, a lot of these guys that we're pulling back on this list this year, maybe their offense is actually holding up better than their defenses. But there's a lot of guys to me that are starting to lose that two-way label for sure. And Ben, how do you feel about that trade overall? If he's coming off the bench and the pieces fit, do you like the Jordan Poole swap? I think they're just trading. Well, look, I would assume Chris Paul is going to be a trade piece for Golden State. Okay. I think that I don't like the fit. I didn't like the D'Angelo Russell fit when they traded for him, and they swore up and down Russell was going to be this bridge to the next, uh, you know, the next era, and he was going to, it was all going to work out. And then they flipped him like whatever it was, six or nine months later. I think Chris Paul fits better as a trade piece than as a player for them, in part because. His style is so deliberate, so slow, so ball dominant. That's why he can't be in the starting lineup with their other guys because those guys are playing pretty quick. They're moving the basketball. Everybody's moving off ball. You don't want just one guy dribbling it. That's like the antithesis of the Warriors offense. So it could kind of work in a second unit where you're just letting him run things. Uh, but, you know, as Dylan said, you know, like big time questions defensively. How many minutes is he going to hold up in the postseason? And then can you just use that salary and then whatever other minor assets you have? 
to find a guy who's going to actually be a bigger minute, more reliable contributor to your postseason rotation. That's what I would be trying to target. I understand why they traded Poole. I mean, that's just egos and money and touches and, uh, you know, a punch to the face, you know, kind of looming over their entire season last year. There's kind of no other way around it. They chose Draymond over Poole. Simple as that. Paul gives them an asset that they can potentially flip going forward. But I'm a little bit lower on Golden State than some people. You know, I, I think their names look amazing on paper. I mean, certainly they have a number of guys on your list. They're going to have a number of guys on my list, too. But, you know, I think it's just they're over leveraged on Steph to be the superhero. And now he's about to turn 35 and it just gets tougher and tougher to be that guy every year the deeper you go into your 30s. So I think Steph's going to be incredible this year, could definitely be an MVP candidate. Uh, but I have questions about Clay, questions about Draymond, big time questions uh, about Chris Paul. And I think a lot of those guys, because of their reputation, escaped some criticism in last year's playoffs. Like Clay was pretty shaky in the playoffs. Draymond got worked by Anthony Davis. Chris Paul, you know, wasn't even around by the end of it. And the minutes that he did play were not spectacular at all for Phoenix. So I don't know why it would be different in 2024. Like what's what's causing things to bounce back in some major way for those guys? I don't know. Well, I think the the thing that would be bouncing back for them is the D'Angelo Russell. Not D'Angelo Russell himself, but the trade. Because he did transition to the next generation by being traded for them. I mean, Wiggins came in, arguably the second best warrior on the finals team. Or the you have a trade piece, team. an idea maybe? A potential trade maybe? No, no, I'm just... Just saying that uh, Wiggins was gone for a good chunk of the season, kind of came back and maybe didn't have his footing fully under him. Uh, And then the Kaminga step up. So I don't think that uh, we can look back to the stars. Uh, I'm in finance. We always say past performance is not indicative of future success. And I think with the stars, that's something that we we maybe go back to too much is uh, Clay could get it back. But I think the reason to have Warriors optimism would be that having Wiggins back for the full season uh, is going to be better. And then if just Kaminga can not even take a jump, but like a, a little bit of a step, go to being a 15 to 20 minutes a night guy that can play consistent minutes, eighth man, maybe loses out on playoff minutes, but like really being the guy or the, I don't know, showing that he can do more. Like an X factor off the bench. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've been pretty anti-Kaminga. I mean, I have a little phrase, you know, touchy-feely in terms of guys who um, have a good sense for their surroundings, good sense for team concept, good decision-making, high IQ type players. And I think that, you know, with Kaminga, the athleticism in the body is absolutely there. But, you know, spatial awareness, uh, defensive awareness, applying his athleticism and kind of making people feel him, fitting into a team concept. Um, all those things to me are major areas, needs of improvement. And so, you know, Draymond was the one pitching, hey, Chris Paul could be like the best thing that happens to Kaminga's career. And I'm willing to go down that road at least a little bit because he absolutely needs somebody in his ear to, on the court to kind of steer him towards his potential. But I don't know. I'll believe it when I see it with Kaminga. I feel like he's a little bit of a tease. Totally with you on Wiggins. Uh, you know, he he was during their playoff run, second best player. I think a lot of people would say the second most important player in the 2022 title uh, run. Um, kind of got lost in the shuffle in last year's playoffs. I didn't feel like he necessarily had an amazing postseason. In terms of your pecking order for Warriors and where you ranked him, where do you have him going in next season? Is he the number two on the Warriors or do you have him behind Draymond or somebody else? I think we had Draymond first, didn't we? We had Draymond at 40. We had Draymond 30. So we have Curry at three, Draymond 39, Wiggins at 45, Clay at uh, 72, and then Kavon Looney snuck in there at 86. You guys didn't have Chris at all? No. Oh, yeah. No. Wow. Uh, did we have Chris? I no, yeah, just... we did. We did. Wait. That's 
That's why I was sort of sorting by uh, last year's teams. 71, 71 right ahead. Yeah, so Chris is seventy one. So, so you got Wiggins third behind Draymond. Yeah, that I mean to me that's a debate. You know, who's more important for them? Who's more reliable across an eighty two game season? Who's bigger impact in the postseason? You know, I, I, it's tough because Draymond got the worst matchup, right? Like dealing with Anthony Davis and trying to actually, there's one more worst matchup that would have been Jokic, and I think Jokic would have eat him for lunch too, frankly. But mm-hmm. um, you know, it's like, so it's a little tricky because Wiggins, you know, he's going to have some tough matchups there on the wing as well, but I don't think it's going to necessarily be as obvious as what Draymond's having to put up with just because Draymond's typically smaller, shorter, and he's playing a more important defensive role in terms of being that backline guy. So that's a tricky one, man. But I think that's, you know, it's kind of debate, like who's the second most important warrior going into this season or who's going to be the second most reliable warrior. I think if they're going to be contenders, Wiggins might need to like outrank Draymond. You know what I mean? Like he might have yeah. to kind of step up and really, you know, t- seize uh, that mantle like you're describing. I don't know if he will or not. He's always been a really hard person to deal with on these top 100s. I think there was a couple years in Minnesota where his numbers were so empty that I was like either left him off or flirting with leaving him off. But, you know, that story did change when he got to Golden State. And, uh, you know, hopefully he has a great year for them. That would be great, actually. And I hadn't really considered his importance for Golden State. If he steps up and has a career type year and just takes some of the pressure off those older guys, that's kind of a best case scenario because that means we get to talk Warriors all season long. I'm a little bit nervous the Warriors are going to be kind of flirting in that play-in zone and driving everybody crazy, making everybody rip their hair out. And I've gone through that cycle so many times with them these last few years that I just don't want to do it again, you know? One thing that does give me hope with the Warriors, though, which, you know, I sort of harped on all last season, even picking them, you know, to go on a deep playoff run, which obviously wasn't the best idea. Um, But, you know, if we go to cleaning the glass and sort five-man lineups, and put a minimum 300 positions. The t- the lineup that comes out right on top is the Warriors starting lineup. And so, but does that have Chris Paul or not? <laughs> they're they're their true starting lineup. Um, yeah. And and so yeah, like the the thing that does still give me hope is like Wiggins missed all the time. It was kind of a weird season. The bench, you know, they couldn't figure out how to do anything. They got actually for the first time maybe a little bit of consistency coming in with their second unit. Um, and then just that five man starting unit is still statistically you know a freaking world world beater yeah they are i had him at a 49 wins so look the the starting lineup was awesome that's why i'm joking like it's insane that they would ever consider tinkering with that especially with a player like chris paul if you're bringing in a kevin durant in 2016 okay you can you can uh juggle your starting lineup like they did right i mean they had a pretty good starting lineup in in 2016 as well and they did change it to accommodate you know former mvp level player but I think that starting lineup has matchup concerns with the Lakers and with the Nuggets. And can they win the Western Conference without getting through one or both of those teams? You know, because I just didn't think that their starters looked as good against the Lakers. I mean, I was stunned, really, frankly, how bad they looked in that Lakers series. I thought they were going to win that series going in. At the start of the season, they ran the Lakers off the court, obviously, before they made the Westbrook trade and everything else. The Lakers were stitching their lineups together with duct tape, you know, down the stretch of the season, all these new players coming in. And none of the continuity stuff mattered because Golden State uh, could not solve the Anthony Davis question, and they didn't make any moves this summer to solve it. So it's, you know, I love Looney more than the next guy. Um, I've been a Team Draymond guy for a decade, but I feel like, you know, their their, um, starting lineup might be a little bit overvalued or inflated in terms of its reputation. Once you get to the playoffs and they have to match up against some of these specific matchup players that are just difficult for them to deal with. You put in two interesting words there, inflated and overvalued. Uh, and as we went through and ranked guys, 
we ended up putting seven players, not Golden State Warriors, transitioning away from Golden State. We ended up having seven guys have a 20 or more spot jump into our top 30 uh, this year. And I went back and looked, and I, we were actually very similar where we ranked them compared to where you ranked them. Uh, and so I wanted to kind of get your take on some of these high risers here. Um, names like Shea jumping from 33 for us, 32 for you. He's now at 10 for us. Uh, names like Jaron Jackson Jr., De'Aaron Fox, Jalen Brunson, Laurie Markkinen didn't make either of our top 100s last year. I feel like uh, he was the biggest anomaly of the whole of the whole year was Lowry. It's crazy. Uh, so, what are your thoughts about uh, Lowry, Jalen Brunson, De'Aaron Fox, Jaron Jackson Jr., Halliburton, Sabonis, or Shea? Um, take one of the seven, two of the. I don't know. Well, who do you really like? Who's going to make your top 30? No, well, a lot of those names, I, I think Brunson would be the exception, but a lot of those names are guys who are sort of like 22, 23, 24 years old. I, Lowry's a little bit older, too. That's why he was the biggest anomaly, because he's been in the NBA forever, and he's never been nearly as good as he was last mm-hmm. season. So there's something in Utah that's making uh, Rudy Gobert look great and, and making Lowry Markin look great the next year. But the trickiest guys are those guys 22, 23, 24, because – you can forecast a breakout for those kind of players, and you can think, hey, he's going to be awesome. He's going to be in the top 50, even though last year maybe he wasn't in the top 100, or last year he was like number 90. And those guys could just exceed that and make you look stupid. You know, Shea's a great example. I mean, he's coming off of some tank years, like, uh, you know, uh, Aaron was mentioning earlier. He's coming off years where he's getting shut down after 50 games. You can't just put him into the top 30 based solely on, oh, I have this amazing belief in him, you know, coming into last year. Um, or blind trust or whatever else you want to call it, you got to make them earn it. You got to make them prove it. And so I would rather be too low on those types of players and then catch up the following year rather than overrate young guys based on hype and then have to kind of pull them back, right? So, you know, an example of this, I would say would be like Jalen Green, right? There's some people who want to come on, you know, last year and say, well, this guy's number two pick, you know, incredibly athletic. Uh, you know, he's I'm flirting with 20 points per game as a rookie. Who cares if it's efficient or not? This guy's got to be like number 50, right? And I had him closer to 82. I'm going back through this year. I'm like, I overrated him. You know, like this guy didn't do anything in his second year. And But there's going to be highlight reels. There's going to be, you know, a lot of buzz on social media. People are going to be getting so excited about him. And so uh, you got to find, you got to split the difference basically when it comes to the young prospects. And then when they do make the leap, then you adjust accordingly. I mean, Tyrese Halliburton to me, I mean, one of the best players in that group that you mentioned, I mean, probably right behind Shea in terms of my personal list of all those names, in terms of guys who I would want to start a franchise with, guys I trust, guys who I think contribute to winning. I believe Indiana was 500 with him on the court and like barely won a game all season with him off the court. So that tells you right away, you know, his central importance it goes beyond just the you know points and, and assist numbers as well. So great leader. Um, he's going to be a guy I probably have in my top 20 this year, or if not top 20, then top 25. I haven't penciled out exactly. And but he had to earn it first, and he was probably what last year in the 50s or something like that, uh, or maybe maybe even lower. I don't remember. So- you had him at 53, and we had him at 59, and now we have him at 21. So that that just knocked him yeah. into our top 20 bubble. Yeah, you guys are right there. I mean, we're, we're aligned on that for sure. I think generally it's better to be one year too late in terms of elevating young players. That's why I don't rate rookies, right? Mm-hmm. Because I don't want to give anybody anything, right? I want to make sure you earn it. And then I also feel it's kind of the same way on the on the back end too. I would rather be one year too late in terms of dropping veteran players than to get punished by somebody like Steph Curry 
sneaking out a finals MVP later in his career. And I thought, oh, you know, he's already past his prime and I drop him to 12 and he goes out and makes me look stupid by leading a championship run and, you know, embarrassing the entire city of Boston and, and you know, going home with, uh, you know, the point to his ring on the parquet and all that stuff, too. So um, I think it's better to be one year too late on the high risers and one year too late on the decline guys, as opposed to the opposite, where you're giving stuff to, to people that they haven't earned and you're taking away stuff from players who have earned it. One thing that made me a little bit uneasy about jumping some of these younger guys into this range, like particularly SGA at 10, is, you know, a real lack of playoff resume. And, you know, you could easily see the situation where these guys make the playoffs for the first time. Obviously not, you know, Shane made it with the Clippers, but in a very different role. Um, and underperform and, you know, show their age. And then we're sitting here with, you know, a top 10 guy who... Or, you know, say Halliburton as a guy who we, we had in the top 20 who, you know, just disappointed in the playoffs and now we have to readjust. Like, how much of that affects your rankings? And, and is that one of the things that, you know, you really had to struggle with, particularly on SGA? No, it's a great question. I, I, I do think that we should, when we talk about top 10 players, sometimes it's good to separate aura from reality. So he is a top 10 player, but you've got him at 10, right? So mm-hmm. this is not like he's six knocking on the door of top five. Like he's the 10th guy and really there's nine guys. You know, if you look at this list, there's like, you know, to me at least there was like nine guys who I felt really strongly had to be in the top 10. And then you have that one kind of space left over. And sometimes it's eight, sometimes it's nine, you know, but I think with Shea and no playoff resume, typically I, I want to see guys earn it. There's no question about it. Uh, I look at that FIBA World Cup, though, and you have a lot of crunch time possessions in that tournament. You have him with the ball in his hands the entire time, and you ask yourself, could he do the same thing he's doing in FIBA in the NBA playoffs? And the question is like, why not? He's got NBA players all around him. He is doing it against entire teams of NBA players. Um, is he going to win a playoff series and carry this Oklahoma City uh, Thunder team you know, this year to the second round? Well, he's in the Western Conference. It's an awful lot harder to do that than it would be in the East. So I'm not going to have that expectation for him. But the way he controls the game, high IQ, two-way player, very good rebounder for his position, calm demeanor, doesn't take himself out of the action because he's you know running too hot or too cold like some other players out there. All those things are playoff attributes. And to me, it's really just about opportunity. And it goes back to the vacuum test. All right, well, he couldn't take Oklahoma City to the playoffs last year. He took him to the play-in. How many guys outside the top 10 could have taken the Oklahoma City Thunder to the play-in? Flip it around and ask that question. There's not too many guys on my list, maybe no guys on my list, who were outside the top 10 last year who would have been able to take that Oklahoma City Thunder team to the play-in. So that would make me feel better on that question. It would kind of, uh, you know, calm my nerves a little bit. And let's also keep in mind, market stuff here is really important, right? A big reason why you might have hesitation about Shea is because even though he's incredibly popular on NBA Twitter and well-respected, especially among Canadian fans, he has not discussed nearly in volume as players who play for bigger market teams, right? If Shea was a Los Angeles Laker, there would be no question that he was a top 10 player, right? The question would be, is he better than Tatum? Would probably be how it gets framed on television, right? It's like, who would you rather have to start a franchise, Shea or Tatum? So you do have to kind of step back again with that vacuum test and say, okay, imagine he doesn't play for the Thunder, one of the smallest market teams. And maybe imagine he doesn't play for the Lakers, the team that gets talked about the most. What if he's just playing for an average team across the board? What's the perception of a player with Shea's skill set and track record and stats and so forth? And I think you add it all up and it's a very compelling top 10 case. So you're saying we shouldn't put him behind Austin Reeves? 
<laughs> well, where'd you guys have Austin? Because I've actually been hearing from a lot of Lakers fans who obviously, you know, they probably think Austin's top three um, in the NBA um, at this point. But where'd you guys have Austin? Because I thought he had a pretty impressive FIBA World Cup run, although there is definitely things you could nitpick about it. He's the kind of guy I was saying earlier. You could fit him into any team context, any team concept. He's going to be a, a quality contributor. Uh, he didn't have the greatest stats last year, but you know, I, I felt like he was a trustworthy playoff performer and one of the best guys the Lakers had on the court during the playoffs. Uh, to me, you know, coming into last year, if you had said Austin Reeves or D'Angelo Russell, I'd be like, well, you know, Russell's been on this list forever. He's going to have to be above Reeves. But I had him as the number three Laker, pretty clear cut. Mm-hmm. I imagine you guys did too. Um, what was the what was the range for Reeves? Uh, we put Reeves at sixty one, which is for like some context of other guys that we've got around there. We've got guys like Miles Turner, uh, Nick Claxton, uh, so, some like key third pieces, or uh, Aaron Gordon's in that kind of range. <clears throat> and for us, Derek White, guys that are like really good high end role players, but probably are not looking at outside All Star or shot cases. Yeah, it's pretty tricky to get a number three option unless, you know, you have a big three, a real big three into like, say, the top 45 or so, right? Because just the way the talent has been kind of smoothed out and spread out around the NBA, um, you know, typically you're taking like two guys from almost every team with the exception of like Charlotte and San Antonio um, before you're getting to like other teams' third options. So, you know, I might have them a little bit higher. I might have them in the 50s, mm. but um, you're in the right range. You know, I just think, his, his real asset to me, you know, in addition to touchy-feely, like I was talking about earlier, high IQ player, which I really like, unselfish, but also able to insert himself. He has a really nice feel for, like, when he should be uh, stepping forward versus when he should be uh, taking a step back. It's the lineup versatility and fit versatility thing that's so important to me. You know, so many of these guys, uh, they have to succeed on their own terms. And Austin is showing that he could succeed on LeBron's terms, which is difficult. LeBron's almost 40, but he's the biggest star in the NBA. Trying to make that work has been, there's been so many role players kind of chewed up these last couple of years with the Lakers, not able to find their footing, not able to find their balance and kind of cycling in and out. And Reeves, by contrast, has thrived. So I'm going to give him a lot of credit for that. I like Austin Reeves. I felt like he has, it was like he's like a mini closer in a way where he's not your star, but down the line, you're like, I think Austin Reeves should actually have the ball more. And especially come playoff time when LeBron's like having the foot issue and Davis just struggles in the post sometimes. It was Reeves really finding his rhythm and kind of carrying the Lakers along. He can win the matchup. And that, that was always something with like Milwaukee. I mean, Chris Middleton, not, he's not uh, Giannis, he's not the star. But he can win the matchup. You usually will have your best forward defender guarding Giannis, and that that kind of is the same thing that Reeves can do. Is he can win his matchup, and so when you get down to those crunch moments, you can give him that ball. Well, yeah, like Aaron said, you know, Aaron, who you know who agrees with you is Steve Kerr because he started Reeves basically at the end of the bench of the FIBA World Cup training, and by the end of the tournament, Reeves was like number two or number three in minutes. He was always on the court in crunch time. And, you know, he had the ball a decent amount. And honestly, you could have made the case he should have had the ball more as a playmaker. And maybe they would have been able to uh, avoid losing three of their last four games. So I do think Reeves has this kind of, you know, proven ability to continually earn more and more and more trust from his coaches. And he's still so young that you expect another jump. You know, he had a huge year one to year two jump, I thought, in terms of his effectiveness. And I'm going to expect another, you know, pretty sizable one this coming season. I remember um, earlier in this season or earlier in last season and the Reeves buzz started to kind of stop and being a Kings fan, like I 
I'll resent the Lakers until I die. And so I push back on that. And I'm like, Ostrieves is actually, this is classic Laker fandom, like getting to my head, like they're trying to get at me. And I, I really suck my teeth into that one because all of the other end of the bench Laker guys that people swore were good end up not being good. And then this, this one, uh, blew up right in my face. It's okay. You're going to get that back on Rui Hachimura this year. You're probably going to get that back on a little bit too much love for Jared Vanderbilt, you know, because he wasn't particularly helpful by the time their playoff uh, run ended. There's other candidates for guys who have been overrated by Lakers fans Christian who will come Wood. back to earth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, buy all the Christian Wood, uh, or, or I guess, you know, short sell all the Christian Wood stock if you'd like. Um, that's a, a real phenomenon. And again, I feel like Reeves is the one guy who is... Uh, who's managed to be the exception to that rule. Reeves and Caruso. I, I thought we were going to have the same thing with Caruso. When it's like, ah, you know, what, white player in LA. Everyone's going to love him. He's got the fun dunks. But then uh, Caruso really developed. I, I sorely missed him. I, the money we gave to THT was he over him was a terrible investment. Taylor Horton Tucker. Yeah, that was the that was the one I made all my money on because he was terrible. And they're like, no, this guy's awful. And they're like, but his arms are so long. And I'm like, I don't, I'm not in. <laughs> yeah. But he yeah, did not turn out. Never heard from since. Another good example of the vacuum test on, you know, in terms of how you're trying to treat these players. You know, Taylor Horton Tucker, lots of buzz as a Laker, goes to Utah, never heard from again, never discussed. I mean, obviously doesn't have a huge role, but, you know, as we're trying to use the Shea example, you know, of the small market guy not getting enough love, it's the same phenomenon there, but in reverse. Well, I want to get back to something you said a little bit ago. Uh, you said that there were nine guys that you kind of had as locks for your top 10. Uh, and then even earlier, you said the conversation kind of starts at two. And then we talked a little bit about Giannis. This one seems like he maybe has the edge at two. But I wonder how many out of that nine you think you can make a strong case for for the top three? For the top three, well, I, I, I think that, you know, push comes to shove, Giannis will be two, right? So then I think when you're looking at number three, it comes down to Curry, Luca, KD are probably the the next candidate. Tatum are the next candidates, and so it really comes down to what's exactly your definition. Now, typically, I'm going to default to the guys who have won previously. I'm going to, like I said, be a year late on it, so I'll probably wind up having Curry at three. But I do think Tatum has a strong case as high as two. I think I have always been Luca over Tatum until this season, but you know the the way last year went. Um, and the way the FIBA World Cup went has really, I don't want to say soured me on Luka, but it's its kind of been like a splash of cold water. And he has better, typically, advanced numbers and individual stats than Tatum does. But a big part of this is leadership personality, being able to make your teammates better and being reliable in big moments. And he's a great clutch shot maker. He wants the ball. I mean, people say, well, maybe, maybe some people would say he's not a great uh, clutch shot maker. He's a great clutch shot taker because he always wants to have every single big shot. And so that helps him make a lot of them. But the way he runs so hot with the officials, the way he psychs himself out, gets himself ejected, gets himself technical fouls in key FIBA World Cup games, just costing his team over and over again because of his lack of uh, competitive composure. I'm going to be holding that against him this year. He's got to earn back some trust from me, right? The story of Luca, the golden boy, just going to be ascendant, going to go straight to MVP status, finals MVP, the next LeBron. It's gotten more complicated, right? And some of the stuff is not his fault. Brunson leaving, the trading for Kyrie. That stuff's not going to work, and I'm not going to hold that against Luca. But what I am going to really demand from any star level player is composure and, you know, making the best of your circumstances and taking your team as far as you can take them. And if he continues to get like 15, 20 technicals every single year 
and, you know, getting so fired up and, you know, getting into fights with his coaches on the on the sideline, like we saw with Rick Carlisle previously, you know, pouting, staying down, not getting back in transition, all that stuff to me matters. And those are just not questions I have with a player like Tatum. So if I'm saying who's more likely to get number three, who's going to really push Curry for that third spot? I would have Tatum over Luka now, and that's not something I've ever said before, but, you know, the the reliability factor is crucial, and I I don't see it as much as I used to from Luka, even though he's the most reliable stat producer in the NBA right now, you know, in in terms of just volume stats, you can count on Luka. If you're playing fantasy basketball, he's probably the guy you want. I don't play fantasy, so I have no idea how it works, but I would guess he's probably pretty high on that list. Um, And then with KD, uh, you know, I was saying that earlier, typically he would have been in top three conversations for me, default. But two straight bad postseasons, you know, two or three straight injury plague years, um, you know, just the way everything played out in terms of him getting to Phoenix and they just have to kind of strip mine everything around him to try to reformulate a team for this year. And, you know, basically trading all these pieces left and right. It doesn't seem like the entire on and off court package has the same ceiling that it used to. And a lot of it's age related. A lot of it is Achilles related. Um, but to me, I don't think he's going to be in that top three debate for me. I think it's probably five guys. You know, I think it's uh, it's Luca and, and Tatum pushing Curry for that third spot. Would you say that Luca is the most fiery or at least most ref antagonistic player since Rasheed Wallace? Pretty much. I mean, you know, I'm sure we could come up with a list of you know Draymond. Demarcus got to be in that mix as well. Yeah, Cousins. <laughs> You got a Kings fan on here. You can't let that Demarcus Cousins slander slide. Right. Well, is here's the difference though, because Draymond knows the, Draymond knows the line, right? Cousins did not know the line. Rashid did not know the line. Luca, given his talent, it's one of those things of like, to whom much is given, much is expected. Nobody should know the line better than Luca mm-hmm. because. Almost every time he steps on the court, he's the most talented player on the court. Unless he's going against Jokic this season, I think he's the most talented player on the court every time he steps on the court. And you can have a real debate. Who's got more natural basketball talent, Jokic or Doncic, right? Um, and probably never come up with an answer because you could just be arguing back and forth for, for 100 hours. The most talented guys should understand that aspect of it better than anyone. It's like take as a, a case study, LeBron James basically has fouled out of, I think, five or six games his entire career. He's played thousand, more than a thousand games, never fouls out, hardly is ever ejected. I think we do a story. Anytime he's been ejected, I'm pretty sure I've written a story about it. Because it's like news. It's only happened like once or twice his entire life, right? Luca is just in a very different ballpark there. And if he can't get it under control, and that's the, the scary part is he's doing this in do or die games in the World Cup for his country, which he really cares passionately about. He's one of the biggest name stars who actually played in that tournament. If he can't control it with his you know national pride at stake, with his country's hopes in these games that where if they lose, they're out. If he can't control it in that situation... Why should I expect him to be able to control it in game three or game four of the NBA finals, right? And we don't have to worry about that because Dallas is not going to be sniffing a finals anytime soon, but that's part of the problem, right? Like he needs to be able to help and kind of build a winning and happy and content culture and get his teammates to feel satisfied and comfortable in their roles. And a big part of the reason why they've had to change their roster so much is because they haven't been able to find guys in those spots, right? You know, I think there's a, you know, a little bit of, I don't know if it's resentment or at least a little bit of pushback in terms of what his usage looks like. It's very hard to play with a guy who has the ball that much, especially if he's upset as Luca is almost all the time. 
Everybody else around the league is like, Luca, why are you mad? You get 20 shots a game, bro. You should be the happiest guy in the league. I love it so much. I couldn't agree more. Um, I was actually, I was out of town at the time we built the first bit of our list. So Nate and Dylan ended up with Luca at eight or at seven. I had him at eight coming in if I was there. Um, and so much of that was the awful demeanor and the horrible attitude. And you can like, if Draymond has that problem, he's the third guy on the Warriors and it's not that big of a deal, but Luca is the guy and the leader and has to set the tone and like just by a leadership standpoint if i'm a maverick and i'm like well, my best player doesn't get back on defense and he spends a lot of the time complaining to the refs and this is his attitude it that saps the team's morale and their energy and their effort i just can't see him being built around a like tatum or like um or like a, a Giannis or a steph and just in terms of like you have to be so resilient and so just just hard and in, in, in the mind in a sense. And I don't think Luca has that right now. I'm with you. And I'm, I'm, I think you guys are uh, being probably going to wind up being even lower on Luca than I am in this year's list. And again, I have to salute you. I mean, that's great. You know, I think <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised. I think he's probably going to wind up being top four for almost everybody. I would guess um, just because when you look at the advanced numbers, he scores so well. And when you look at just box score numbers, I mean, he's typically like first team all NBA every year. People just write him in because he's averaging, you know, close to a triple double and, you know, he's got all these heroics along the way. So I think you were seeing through some of that. And I think that's, um, you know, that's a valuable uh, analyst skill. Yeah. My unofficial ballot left him off of uh, the first team. We're podcasters and TikTokers. We don't have ballots, but uh, I went for uh, (laughs) Donovan Mitchell and SGA over him just because of that uh, late season tank. Uh, and, And Ben, I know I said I'd try to we try to keep it about an hour, but I had one more question for you. You're doing your podcast, it's greatest of all talk, and you have a whole mantra line of t-shirts. So for anyone that <laughs> does not know the pod, is not listening, can you give us a top five of your, your mantras and wh- how they apply and why people should listen to the pod based on these mantras? Well, you know, you're basically selling this like a cult. So you're kind of putting me in a difficult spot here. Um, Embrace yeah, it. No, Be the cult leader. Not, of, is it not a cult? Yeah, you're taking our money. We listen to you speak for uh, three hours a week. I I hate to say it. This is a basketball cult, Ben. You've started it. Well, I'm honored that you guys would view me that way. It's, I'm tickled. Um I think when you guys talk as much basketball as you guys do or as we do, you're just looking for shortcut phrases that you can simplify things to boil it down, right? So if I'm talking about Anthony Edwards, why I don't like him, well, he doesn't have the touchy-feely, right? And that just means, oh, he doesn't have as much touch or, um, you know, in terms of like feel for controlling the game or touch on his jump shot or, you know, as wide range of uh, shooting skills as I would like. Maybe he's not passing as much as he would like. It's just kind of a shorthand. You compare it to a player like Josh Giddy. If you say Josh Giddy's a touchy-feely player, people know what that means right off the bat. He might not be as athletic or as imposing or as good defensively as a player like Anthony Edwards. I mean, those things are probably not up for debate. I don't know. But, you know, it's just a, a handy shorthand. So a lot of these phrases that I've come up with, my mantras, are really just ways of saying something that would take a minute to explain and boiling it down into like 10 words or less, right? So I think the one everybody knows is the greatest ability is availability. That is just to remind people that you got to be on the court to have any sort of a, a contribution, right? If you're an injury plagued player, if you're a Ben Simmons, right? If you just can't handle showing up for work and punching the clock, it does not matter how how talented you are. It's the discipline. And that even goes back to a Kevin Durant phrase where it's like, uh, you know, hard work beats talent if talent fails to work hard. I mean, he had that as like his Twitter quote for like years and years and years. And people would always say that, that like, you know, that was like his mantra. 
And I think there's a lot of truth to that, especially in the NBA. We see so many talented guys not live up to expectations. John Morant's a perfect example right now. I love John Morant's game, but look, man, if you're dancing with guns and doing all this other goofy stuff, you're not going to be available for your teammates and you're not available as a leader. That's why it's kind of the foundational ability. It's, it's the greatest ability. I would say my second one, and we touched on this a lot, but not, you know, not judging a player on his best day or his worst day, trying to find the baseline. That is the crux of analysis, You know, trying to get through just the Luka game winners and just the Luka pout sessions and figure out who is he on the average Tuesday and how much can you trust that player. When you're trying to rank guys, when you're trying to forecast who's going to win the title, it is such an important skill. You look back at who won the title last year. It's the most dependable guy in the NBA, Nikola Jokic. Every single night, you know what you're going to get from Jokic. Practically a triple-double. And, you know, some nights he'd, he'd slack on defense a little bit for sure. He got a little bit bored of things in uh, March and April. But when things kicked up in the playoffs, uh, he always found a way to impact the game positively. And there was only a couple of games, honestly, where he had off nights the entire postseason run. So to me, it's a great example of trying to find a player's baseline. Nobody had a higher baseline than Jokic last year. So, you know, that makes him the number one player um, in the NBA. I talked about touchy-feely. That's a a new one. It's kind of come up, especially in pre-draft analysis. So many of the guys we're seeing come up in the American system don't know how to play team basketball recently, or they're very talented one-on-one guys, and they need to adjust to kind of learning to play within a team concept. So I'm looking for that touchy-feely now more than ever because – everyone's getting numbers, but who's getting numbers that contribute to wins? And, th- and those kinds of skills, to me, really uh, you know, help distinguish players that might look good on a mixtape versus players who are going to look good winning playoff games for their teams. Another one of my goofy phrases, win connoisseur. You guys are all win connoisseurs, I could tell, just based on your taste of players. But it's this idea of let's not get caught up in the razzle-dazzle and, you know, and, and uh, sports center top 10. Let's try to salute players, regardless of their personality, who get it done. So, you know, Tim Duncan's a classic win connoisseur type player, mm-hmm. never made a commercial in his life, at least not a good one, wore goofy <laughs> jeans. He's never going to look as cool on the runway as a Russell Westbrook, but he's going home with as many championships as Kobe Bryant, Magic Johnson, right? So um, I want to be a guy who celebrates players like that and rather than focuses on, you know, it, a little bit like Oregon's coach, uh, his quote about uh, Colorado, you know, we're out here for wins, not clicks. You know, that's a win connoisseur mentality. You know, we're trying to go out there and, uh, you know, put together an undefeated season rather than be, you know, number one uh, talked about uh, on every show. The last one, it would be play with a purpose. This is the one that trips people up the most. But I think some players play with purpose. They play really hard. They're going out there, uh, you know, they're put their head down, they're, they're scowling, you know, Russell Westbrook comes to mind, you know, he's going to give you great effort most nights, not always defensively, but, you know, he's at least going to be, you know, uh, playing energetic basketball, but that's playing with purpose versus playing with a purpose, which is this idea that you need to be able to see the entire court, you need to understand the needs of all 10 guys who are out there, uh, you need to have a plan of attack as opposed to just putting your head down and barreling through traffic and you need to try to make your teammates better and take a more holistic approach so for years the contrast there was Chris Paul plays with a purpose Russell Westbrook plays with purpose and you know Chris Paul you know in my opinion has had a more successful and better career than Russell Westbrook even though he doesn't have that MVP accolade Um, and even though he didn't have as much playoff success as Westbrook did as a number two guy earlier in his career um, you know to me there's no question Chris Paul is a better all-time point guard on that list than Westbrook and I think there's some people who, out there who feel differently, 
and that's fine. They're entitled to their opinions, but I like players who play with a purpose. Halliburton's a great example. You saw it during the FIBA World Cup, always trying to set his teammates up for success, always trying to keep the pace fast because he knew the guys on that bench unit would really thrive in transition. Uh, he feels like an heir apparent to me in that category. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of other young players who I, I just haven't seen them make that particular leap yet. Um, so that's one of my biggest compliments I can give to guys. I, I try to reserve that for a select few, but uh, I think Hallie has earned it. Absolutely. We are right there with you on uh, Paul over Westbrook. Aaron and I are, well, we're 200 players deep in our all-time rankings. Uh, we've, yep. We start off by going by position, trying to figure out a 25, 50-person group, and then take the top of each of these and we're we're out to 200 then positionally we're out to 75 uh for the one through four still gotta get the, our centers out to 75 but uh yeah it's uh it's a lot of fun to try to take some of those mantras into some of that work being win connoisseurs uh you know are they actually accomplishing something or is it just phonetic energy out there? Great stuff. I hope we can yeah, get more goats. And, and shout out to John Wooden too. I mean, he's the one who said never mistake activity for achievement. He actually said it more cleanly. You know, that's basically the, the gist of play with a purpose. But you've seen, I even saw Giannis actually put that as a Twitter caption, I think recently. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, nobody had the mantras better than John Wooden. Uh, great books. Everybody should read those. But it, it's the same general idea. You know, you could be running out there like a chicken with your head cut off thinking you're doing something and you're actually doing less than nothing. You know, you're, you're hurting things. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's much trickier to achieve than it is to just be active. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Ben. I know people can find you on the GOAT podcast. People can find you at the Washington Post. Is there anywhere else people can find you? WashingtonPost.com slash sports. We're going to have all sorts of NBA preview stuff coming up here. It's going to be an awesome first week. My hope is to be in Denver for opening night, San Antonio for Wednesday night, Wembenyama's debut, and then back to L.A. Thursday for KD versus LeBron, which we haven't seen since Christmas, I think, 2018. So maybe just shut the season down after the first three nights. I mean, that sounds like it's not going to get better. So maybe just end on a high note. Uh, but yeah, greatestofalltalk.com for the podcast. Um, I'm on X at Ben Golliver and on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. And I appreciate you guys having me. Do you have any of your own mantras? Have you started to workshop your own lexicon yet here on the temple or no? I don't think we have. We, Man, probably we, should, should. we, should, we should do a whole <laughs> pot on that. We can try to think about stuff. It, it, it falls similarly in line, especially me and Nate doing our top 200 stuff, like looking for um, – uh, contributing to winning and, and playing with that purpose and that's that's good stuff and the wooden quote was fantastic we'll work on it when i when we initially started it uh it was hoops temple and then we had like an under tag slogan which was a home for the basketball gods i'm i'm a very big fan of uh phil jackson's work and him and tex winner would always say you know the basketball gods don't play favorites they you know just go with who comes in and plays the hardest and the purest and so, uh, you know, we've got Temple in the name. We've got Home of the Basketball Gods on some things. Like, we got we to gotta come up with something. We've got maybe the Ten Commandments, something holy, biblical. <laughs> That's good. Aaron and I we'll are get doing it. Do it. Do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, guys, you're ta- we started this as talking about cults. You know, you're going to ascend to the next <laughs> level of the cult. Once you're writing your own rules for your listeners, okay? So that's that's how you get up to that next level. You know, you just got to put a little bit more sweat there. It'll be great. On Yom Kippur of all days to have this conversation of starting a, uh, a cult. Uh, well, uh, Aaron, where can the people find you? This podcast all the time and possible chairs on TikTok. Dylan, where can the people find you? On the Hoops Temple podcast. You can find me here. You can find me. Nate, under, Nate hashed 
ah, Nate underscore Hoops Temple on TikTok and email us all at hoopstemple at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Ben, once again, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, guys. Great list, great conversation. Hopefully we do it again soon. Absolutely.